0: From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. Today's Blue Sky episode is a conversation with a remarkable entrepreneur, who has taken the expertise she gained as a recruiter, and HR professional, and turned her efforts towards, as she says, employing the unemployable. In 2010, my guest Margot Walsh founded MaineWorks, an innovative employment company with a social mission to dignify the experience for people who face real barriers to workforce reentry, including people recovering from substance use disorder and people with felony convictions. Margot Walsh has over 20 years of experience in recruiting, staffing, and employee development. Working for the investment banking division within Goldman Sachs, Margot helped develop the Diversity Roundtable to provide mentorship and assimilation support for people of diverse backgrounds. For 10 years following, she recruited for the rapid expansion of the international human resources consulting firm, Hewitt. As a consultant, Margot travels extensively to discuss the challenges facing Americans struggling to earn even meager incomes and accessing the social services they deserve. She also consults extensively with state agencies, organizations, and individuals who are interested in developing or incorporating the Maine Works business model or its unique social mission. Margot is a great business person doing remarkable work, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with her as much as I did. Margo Walsh, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Bill. It's a pleasure.
0: Well, it's an honor to have you on. You are an incredible entrepreneur and founder of an organization called Mainworks. And many in our audience will be familiar, but probably the majority will not. So could you please explain what Mainworks is all about?
1: Thank you so much, Bill. Yes, of course. Mainworks is a social employment company specializing in the construction sector. We invite people who are in recovery from substance use disorder and reentry from jail and prison to get a fresh start through hard work and skills development within the construction sector. So we work as a staffing agency model, which implies that we have clients that work in the sector that need labor support and we provide labor to job sites all throughout new england
0: so when you find people they are you are the employer is that right and you take care of insurance and those things and then you match them with someone who can use their services yes
1: in fact bill that's a great way to to, um, drill it down we are essentially um, the employment outcome that involves payroll insurances making sure that people are well uh, certified for whatever skill they might be utilizing. So we're the clearinghouse and we have to hire with discretion. And that's a really important point. Even though we work with these populations and we are intentional about hiring people with barriers, we also have to be very careful to hire with discretion so that our clients get what they need too. So it's that middle, the middleman between the devourous need for uh, construction site labor and the people that are interested in doing the work but we have to be that conduit in the middle
0: and as that conduit I assume you are addressing I'm thinking of an uh, of an employer whose concerns would be well they need to be reliable well they can't be you know abusing on the job so you're the you're the entity that screens all that and and delivers employees who are ready to go and they don't have to worry about that
1: We are the middleman and the construction sector has relied on staffing agencies throughout history for temporary labor. And my disruptive plan at the time was to dignify that because as the lowest rung on the construction site, the laborers were easily exploited and easily taken advantage of and easily paid minimally and through these staffing agencies paid cash at the end of the day, which fed into that whole idea of, you know, lack of access to prudent banking and all these other things that were natural barriers. If you pay cash at the end of the day to people who are already struggling, that money disappears. So it doesn't create an opportunity for economic viability. It actually robs people of that opportunity. So I felt to dignify that would be to pay people weekly, give them a sense of future orientation and that how their training and development would lead to future opportunities. So we really wanted to become more of a holistic employer rather than just, uh, you know. That transient day labor. And they set up by the, the homeless shelters really intentionally because they know that they can pull those people in and all they need is that $70 to get through the day. And I found that really um difficult. So that's what I sought to change by starting Mainworks.
0: Amazing. And and back to hanging out by the, the homeless village, if you will. Is that where you how do you find your people? Or how do people find you?
1: If you consider recovery a continuum. And a lot of people who have justice involvement in Maine are also substance involved. If you look at that as a continuum from needing detox, needing treatment, you know, their life is burning down, frankly, through substance use, or they got arrested. That's the kind of early, early moment where people decide to make a difference in their lives or not. Many don't get to it and they don't, they can't, they can't hold it. Uh, but working with that population at that moment, their arc then often involves uh, sober living. In this day and age, uh, the opioid crisis has created a lot of sub-business opportunities, and one is um, sober housing, which I think is very legitimate. And so a lot of people choose to live there. So Maine Works in our growth have decided that we would mostly rely on uh, sober living as a, as a source of employment, uh, employees, because that would that would indicate that they're safe and secure. We can also help them with um, the cost of that housing, if that's a burden. Those sober houses are also um, often programmatic, at least, so that they provide some kind of social outcomes or at least a congregate living setting that's very well organized and structured. So we recruit from those or from jail and prison pre-release centers, which have been profoundly affected by COVID. They all had to close down because they couldn't staff or they couldn't keep people moving in and out of the community. So we work mostly now with sober houses.
0: And it seems there that you fill a really important link in the chain because you can do as well as you, as you want with sober housing or, or a, a halfway house out of prison. But it, if you get out and can't find gainful employment, the recidivism rate must be through the roof. So you play this really important role in between, I would think, the employer and the person getting out of these facilities.
1: Yes. Thanks, Bill. And and what I've been really grappling with now personally is that we've had success. We've grown. We're now in three states, which is all great. However, um, industry standard for staffing companies is about a 50 percent burn rate, um, attrition in the first week that, you know, a lot of people don't stay. They can't manage the work life. They don't have other priorities in order. So our attrition is really high. And what I'm trying to do now is to address what happens to those people who identified as work ready, thought they would be all set, wanted to work, and yet couldn't for whatever reasons, even with the earnest um, intervention that we offer as a company. We, because I have a uh, partner 501c3 nonprofit, which is really important. I need to talk to you about that. But even with that collaboration, we're often not able to keep these people engaged. And I'd like to know what happens to those people and how we might be able to um, further engage them. They couldn't go into the private market. I couldn't I couldn't provide them to our clients as a resource, but they still showed up as ready to go. So how can we engage that population is my next kind of thing. <laughs>
0: And don't worry, my research will take us to the 501c3 shortly. It's coming. Okay.
1: Great. Uh, Thanks,
0: Bill. So before I do that though, I'd love to talk a little bit about you and why you're doing this work. What is it about your background, your interest? You from your resume, you know, you were a recruiter, but at Goldman Sachs. And, you know, and you, you come at it from a background. You grew up in Maine, but you left for college. You're back. What brought you to this idea and why do you have such a passion for this work?
1: Thanks for asking, Bill. So since 1987, when I started at my New York banking recruiting world, I was always drawn to recruiting for differences. And at the time, it was the early, early stage of recruiting for diversity. And I, regardless of my main background and having gone to this boarding school in Ireland with the nuns, I've always had this social thing that I felt really drawn to. And so when Goldman Sachs was talking about a diversity roundtable, I rushed right in and said, we need to do that. So I have always enjoyed trying to find a way to assimilate people who were otherwise always on the outside. So within investment banking, diversity was a new thing back then. So that's kind of the um, the early part of my interest. But then it just I have personally always felt that my best Role in life is as kind of a um, the person who connects people. So I feel like the the gray matter. Like I, I always love meeting people and connecting them to an outcome or helping them identify a, a larger outcome for themselves. So employment development was a of interest to me all the time. And at Goldman, um, we had in, we recruited for investment banking for the analyst program, and that was a finite two year program where they had to really start to think about their career more broadly, even through, um, you know, that Goldman opportunity is kind of a a golden ticket, obviously. But then they had to consider what do they want to go on and do beyond that. So I love that helping young people decide what they want to do with their lives. It was always what I enjoyed the most.
0: And you've spoken openly in the past about yourself being in recovery. Would you say that your own lived experience has helped you bring a passion or an expertise or an understanding or an empathy to the work that you're doing?
1: So MainWorks was absolutely born of that. And I saw a way to put my understanding of how um, employment works with my interest in helping people who struggle with early recovery challenges. But I also, when I first started MainWorks, it's really important. Although it was born of my own recovery, I also felt that there was a huge structural and systemic bias against people who had incarceration and felons were still unilaterally um, discriminated against. And I, that was really what fueled my interest as much as my recovery, but really driven by, um, in fact, my company, when, you, when I first started Mainworks, in order to work at Mainworks, you had to be a felon which was pretty disruptive back then. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say. (laughs) And um, I love that because it it takes something that was an accepted uh, bias that we all carry and said, no, I'm going to change that. And so that was really why I started MaineWorks. And everybody in Maine, frankly, who is justice involved is usually substance related. Yes. If you can think about that. So that's, it's, in fact, the statistic is about 90% of people incarcerated in Maine are there for behavior related to or derivative of substance use.
0: The business model for Maine Works is unusual, and it's understandable why it's so attractive to employers. Margot's company does a lot of the toughest work finding and screening employees and being sure they're prepared to go do the job. We'll talk more about how they do that shortly. I was surprised to hear that there's a 50% attrition rate in the first week for day laborers in construction, and you can only imagine how disruptive that is for an employer. Mainworks creates a win-win here, first by employing and placing people who otherwise might not find work and then delivering them to employers who need good people who will stay on the job and do it well. And you can tell that Margot is driven by a sense of purpose when she describes addressing the unfairness of not hiring felons who have done their time and says that she loves breaking bias. Getting back to our conversation, I wanted Margot to tell us about the nonprofit that she and her sister started to go along with MainWorks. So if I did my research right, I think the 501c3 you're referring to is the Main Recovery Fund.
1: That's correct. But because of our growth, it's now named United Recovery Fund.
0: Okay, good. So tell us about that.
1: So in 2017, a donor came forward and said, I really want to help you guys. How can I do that? It doesn't seem that you're a nonprofit. I said, no, we're a for profit. We should probably be a nonprofit, but I didn't have time to do that when I first started. So, but clearly, (laughs) the needs that people face when they're just starting over are really daunting and they include really basic things like outerwear and rent assistance and getting their teeth fixed and all that kind of stuff. So, um, a a donor came forward and said, How can I help? And he said, Well, I could help you if you have a, a way for me to. Donate. Donate. So we, my sister is a philanthropy advisor in Wyoming, and she said it's very easy. We just start a nonprofit. So my sister and I co-founded uh, what was Maine Recovery Fund, and as we've grown, is now United Recovery Fund to address the issues that are barriers to employment, including rent, transportation is the biggest one, outerwear, teeth, dental care, um, mental, and eye care lots of different, very, very basic things we take for granted. But for people who are in transition, those are outrageous expenses and often they're not insured.
0: I I think that's one of the toughest things when you haven't been part of that community to understand these things we take for granted. I, I interviewed a young man who, he was actually in a high school where he had to, for the first time, wear a tie. And he was raised by crack addicted parents and he never learned how to tie a tie. Or I interviewed Jeff Korzenek, who does similar work to yours in terms of people coming out of prison. And he's like, you know, you might get 50 bucks and they hand you back your clothes and now you're out in the world and you don't know. And someone says, well, call a cab, call an Uber. You've never used a smartphone because you've been in prison for 15 years. You know, these things that we just don't think about. seems to me that this main United Recovery Fund now can address those very effectively.
1: I was at an event for Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition and a justice-involved person who had had 15 years inside. He came out and he said, after two days, I wanted to go back. Life was easier on the inside than the outside. And, And I will say, Bill, that in Maine, our Commissioner of Corrections is really open to programming and Doing more to help people in this reentry process than ever before, frankly, but it takes a long time to, um, you know, deconstruct a system that was developed over years with a certain way of conducting that business, and now all of a sudden we're trying to shift, and that's going—that's like you know, moving course for the Titanic. It's very, very difficult.
0: Right, and so so that that sense of it was easier in prison. You add to that, you know, you apply for a job not with you but with someone else, and you check that box as. Is- formerly incarcerated and right. you don't get hired it's just there are too many yeah so i think the, the 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 chain that link in the chain that you serve is incredible so you mentioned being in two other states i think it's massachusetts and new hampshire yes. if i have it right why isn't or is there a main works in other states why this seems to me i'm sure it's incredibly hard work for you all but it seems to me to make so much sense is this in other parts of the country and if not why not
1: Uh, That's a great question, and it's a natural development opportunity for us. But this is where we run into that um, challenge, Bill. Where first of all, many different cities, small cities, are all unique. Like we're talking to New Haven right now, but there's different complexities within Connecticut. There are different, you know, every every town and city has its own kind of DNA that we would need to learn and respond to. So how we are organized is a hub and spoke model. So Portland, Maine, is the is the hub and each state has its, own, you know, represented by a spoke that can conduct themselves autonomously within that setting by learning from what we are doing here at the macro level in Portland. Um, and they can come up here and train here. So, but they're still owned by mainworks works and they're still employed by mainworks works. There's a consideration of how we could replicate more broadly, but frankly, it's as easy as wherever there is um, a, a community of substance free living, like sober housing, uh, then an employ- and, and construction jobs in the area, we can set up very easily. Um, so it's, it's coming. It's just been slow because of a lot of factors. But especially now that the sober community is well-established in many, many places, it's more likely for us to be able to expand. Because controlling that population is difficult because if they are not properly housed, then nothing else matters. And that's true for everybody.
0: Right. And is, is construction the sweet spot as an industry because there's so much day labor? I mean, are there other industries you've thought about or tried to move into or have moved into? Or is it really a construction focus? Because I think it seems that a lot of places there's plenty of open jobs there. That's probably all you need.
1: And the construction focus initially was because it's merit-based. And no one was discriminating against felons at the time because many people in the construction industry might have been justice-involved themselves. So that's um, that was the original reason. And also the, the way the construction sector manages their financial commitments to every single project, they've built in a considerable budget for labor. So they're more inclined to be able to absorb the construction, the, the fee associated with staffing agency. Um, other organizations definitely have have been successful taking um, on staffing companies, but um, we've just always loved Because I also feel like within the construction industry, there are so many different career paths because even it's just a matter of getting in the door. And for our, our people who would have never been able to darken the door of a place of the caliber of Chinbro or Consigli, which are huge regional companies up in the Northeast, you know, they would have never seen those companies. So they get to audition. And then from that position, they could grow exponentially within that organization.
0: So let's talk about another group of people you work with, immigrants or new Americans who come, if people don't know, Maine is a very interesting place these days. Still, I think the the quote unquote whitest state in America, but with a huge influx of first generation immigrants, largely from Africa, different countries around Africa, come to a place like Maine. And the toughest, one of the toughest things is employment and finding, you know, opportunities for their kids and that sort of thing. So can you talk about how you've tried to work with that community?
1: I think this is the most important thing for the next six months in this country, actually, Bill, because if there's an opportunity for division, this particular issue is the ultimate divider because there's so many myths about how we got here. Yes. And I will say that as a com- as a country, we invite refugees and asylum seekers. And I I morally support that 100%. People coming from other countries are coming in profound distress and for really important reasons, but they get lumped in with the homeless. So you've got your new Americans who are being treated exceptionally, frankly, because of our federal way of processing and enrolling asylum seekers. And that conflicts with the way we manage our indigenous homeless people so it's a total conflict starting in addition to to that we have also invited people to come to this country as asylum seekers for a year forever yeah. right we are all immigrants right. my parents came from ireland in 1966 so it's not like you know this has been our that's how we've been built as a country and yet we have failed to offer people immediate access. So September 11th um, was the reason why all of a sudden people didn't get automatic work visas. And so now we can all look to each other in this um, you know, puzzlement to say, why don't we give these guys work visas? That is a serious problem. That's a federal issue that I think could be the quickest way to solve this is to solve that issue. They should be given a provisional work visa the minute they arrive, right. because then they can work. And then if they you know break the law or something then that work visa is revoked right, immediately sure. and they're they're you know deported for example right. but right, right now what we have is a whole group of people who are working quote under the table right. and we have an appetite for that workforce it's the back of the pickup truck workforce yep. it's ultimately so exploitive it's trafficking and that population needs to be engaged immediately employed immediately and stabilized immediately same with our own homeless people obviously yep. but the homelessness in Maine represents a huge number of people who are straight up drug addicted yes. so until we deal with that so we but you can't have these two populations conflicting for the same resources and then having asylum seekers frankly becoming favored for resources right. at the expense of and the you know the the division of but what about our own people which is a terrible um, and divided discussion that I think needs to be addressed squarely by allowing asylum seekers to work immediately.
0: The people Margot's team is hiring have so many unmet basic needs that many of us would take for granted. Proper clothes, a ride to work, And some would be set up to fail were it not for the support of the United Recovery Fund. And partnering with sober housing facilities makes a ton of sense, as the people there are both housed and looking for gainful work as part of their recovery process. And I like the way Margot also sees growth opportunities for her employees, saying that one of the reasons she likes partnering with construction firms is that they have other jobs at the companies that main work staffers can be promoted into. And when we debate immigration in this country, there are many elements of policy on which reasonable people can disagree. But when it comes to providing work visas for people who are here and ready to work, it seems like something with which it's hard to argue. Getting back to our conversation, I asked Margot to describe what's required of new Americans to be employed by Maine Works.
1: They have to be legally authorized to work in this country because I have to play by all the rules, which is really frustrating that so many people get away with not playing by the rules. Um, So what we do, though, is once people are authorized to work in this country, their challenges are also myriad and complicated and um, so what we try to do is address each individual with what, you know, that we do a needs assessment. So the the 501c3 nonprofit actually does no, a non-clinical intake, basically just what do you need? How are you? Where are you living? What are your barriers? And how can we help you? Right. So that's what we do for everybody that comes through the door, whether they're, um, indigenous from Maine, out of state people getting sober here in Maine, New Americans, returning veterans, any of those people get to do a clinical, uh, an intake that um, discusses what they need to move forward with their work life.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, it's really challenging with the immigrant population. And people listen to my podcast know I've often described immigrants as the ultimate optimists. You know that they're coming to this country for this opportunity, and in many many cases, they are incredibly well qualified. We worked with a young man from Rwanda years ago who moved to Maine. He was a practicing attorney in, in in Rwanda. He worked for Heineken Brewery. And he came to Maine. And because his law degree was from another country, he's starting over. And here was this person who had so much to offer. And he's actually wound up doing just fine. Um, and his whole family got over here eventually. But it was really heartbreaking to watch this person who was so qualified. But these little issues of where he got his law license and that sort of thing, just it was, it was hard to watch.
1: But, Bill, your program is allowing other people to hear these issues and recognize that the way our systems have grown up have just been happenstantial. It was never a plan that they would find these ways to, you know, um, block immigrant attorneys, but by virtue of um, the system that we've built, that happens naturally. So how can we take these issues and look at them practically in a non-political way and see what's the best way forward for this individual? And that takes a lot of um, will and um, engagement on the onset, but the value that that person brings in the aggregate exceeds that investment at the onset, right? without question.
0: So if somebody's listening to this and they are in a in an industry let's say it's construction that could use your services how do they do it how do how do you connect with people do they find you are you out soliciting new employer partners how does all that work
1: well that's a great question Bill thank you um before covid we had probably 40 clients now we have seven because the lack of the labor workforce, So we're not really in the position to bring in a whole lot of new clients we would love to, but the clients that we bring in need to be um, definitely aware of what we're doing and agree with the importance of stabilizing people who are in transition. So we feel like our our existing client base are extremely well aligned with our ethos. And I, I really appreciate that. So that's a huge challenge for us. And so you're going to laugh, Bill, because last week I spent hours on the phone with an attorney talking about becoming our own H-2B visa, being a designated employer for H-2B visa. And so hopefully that message, Bill, of how can companies in the United States be earnestly looking to hire people who are not from this country and bring them here through our H-2B program when there are people up the street who don't have a work visa? So Hopefully that will kind of, I I would love for anyone listening to say, oh yeah, that makes sense. And as an industry, whatever their industry that they might represent, that they can appeal to whoever they know in the legislature and certainly at the federal level to say, why should companies have to be looking to hire outside of the United States when we have a workforce here that's
0: underutilized? It's fascinating. One of my earlier interviews was with Bert Jacobs, who's one of the founders of Life is Good. And he has a has a belief that I share, which is that in our country, the the for-profit business sector is so big and so powerful that none of the societal or climate or other issues that we care about will be solved without the involvement of the business sector. We can't just look to government. We can't just look to churches and synagogues. We have to engage the business community. And it actually kind of warms my heart that you're a for-profit doing this work Because I think that's a that's a real way to get at it. And from my research, if I have it right, you are a certified B Corp first in Maine, I think. And a lot of people might not be familiar with that, but I think it's a really positive movement and it's not an easy thing to get certified as a B Corp. So can you describe what that is and what the qualifications are to become one?
1: B Corp status is one of the most important things. It's on my business card. I talk about it a lot. Um, I have a great friend who is an author named Chris Marquis, who's now at Oxford for a semester, who is kind of a leader, a thought leader in social enterprise. And what you just described, Bill, as that three-legged stool, which is governments, for-profits, and non-profits need to work in a synergist way in order to change the way to, to make make room for the profound social and environmental crises that we're facing. It cannot be up to nonprofits and the government to solve these issues. So, um, and, and a company that needs to make money to stay open um, has every right to choose to forego maximizing profits in exchange for considering their impact on society and environment. That's the law that B Corp represents. That's a B Corporation, benefit corporation says that as a stockholder of a company, I need to understand that the company in which I'm investing has the right to consider their impact on society and, invest and, and environment. That doesn't mean that they're you know, rushing forward, squandering their resources in favor of the environment and society. But come on, we, we can't (laughs) leave it up to nonprofits. I run a nonprofit and raising money is tedious and time consuming and I'm, you know, a devourist of my time. And, um, the government is difficult still because they're not innovative. So they're not meant to be innovative. They're right. So, they could come up with some more creative solutions. But so I think that the B Corp, um, which is a for-profit company with a social or environmental mission is really important. Um, And then you have opportunism happening, corporate greed and corporate opportunism for things like, you know, there's a huge retail company that hires people and keeps them at minimum wage and keeps them on a part-time continuum in order that they are eligible for social services and those huge corporations get huge tax breaks, so they're not sure. paying anywhere. They're not, and they're they're benefiting. So that that cynic, that the, the um, cynic in me sees that malfeasance, and what a way to to um, abuse your power as a corporation than to take advantage on every front. Right. So I feel like we just need to talk about these things. In and I I value um, your your way of being, Bill, and and that you're optimistic and unifying. So hopefully, we can find a way to move forward that brings people together, in common sense.
0: Oh, thanks. Well, but you don't just raise your hand and become a B Corp. So what what is that process? If there's others out there who think, "Gosh, I think I'm running a business like this, and that might help me." How does that all work? Um, it's very prat- it's
1: a very um, technical application process. You're right. Uh, we started. We became a B Corp in 2013 when B Corp was relatively new. Yeah. Uh, and so they were they hadn't developed their metrics to the degree. Now we still have to comply with those metrics, but they're very rigorous. And what B Corp does, it's like the um, good housekeeping seal of, of approval or fair trade or for organic that we do what we say we do. And they have raked us over the coals and back to authenticate yeah. that what we say is what we really do. And there's no... There's no little corners that are left uninvestigated. So it, I really do feel very proud of our B Corp um, status, and we have to fight to maintain—not fight. It, I don't mean to suggest that it's um, contentious, but we have to really yeah. work hard to maintain that accreditation. Um, and we do, we do they
0: come back every yeah, year or so, they or how does that work?
1: Every every two years, you go through a full wow. recertification. Which is a lot. But then again, if you're going to make decisions about who, because they have noticed that this younger generation is making decisions based on those values, what their own personal values are. Like, that's why Bombas and Toms of Maine and Ben and Jerry's and Patagonia do so well. Patagonia is having their record-breaking years because of their commitment to 1% for planet. That's huge. And people listen to that.
0: Margot smartly and honorably plays by the rules in her business and makes sure that her clients are well aligned with her ethos as well. And she's worked hard to earn and maintain B Corp status, which I've learned from her and others is no small thing. Getting back to our conversation, I couldn't let Margot go without asking her about a very exclusive event I know she was invited to attend in Washington, D.C. I started at the beginning of this saying that a lot of people wouldn't have heard of Maine Works, but you have been recognized in my, my fun facts section here. You once were attended the State of the Union address, with none other than our Senator Angus King. Could you explain how that came about? And then for all of us who've ever watched the State of the Union and thought, boy, wouldn't it be cool to be a guest at the State of the Union? Could you tell us what, what that experience was like?
1: Well, thank you, Bill. Um, The security is intense, you can imagine. (laughs) And the cool thing about being invited by a senator, and you just get invited, and I think he just thought what we were doing was cool and interesting. Uh, Senator King is the person that I have so much respect for, in that he likes to find ideas in the state of Maine and amplify good ideas. So that across the country, he actually started a governor's. kind of information exchange for good ideas when he was governor of the state of Maine. So he really loves to amplify um, innovation, which is great. Right. So I was invited, um, which was such an honor and a surprise. And I was the only one there at the time from Maine and um, was invited to attend the senator dinner, which precedes the event. And so there's only a hundred senators so yeah. it's not a big, it's smaller than a lot of weddings. Right. And so it was really interesting because we talk about being right up and close. And what Angus King always says and what was evident in that room at the senator's dinner is that there's a cordiality and a a, a work environment that is mutually supportive. And this whole divisiveness that we've created and the media has amplified, um, which I don't blame them because it's truly happening, is Extortive. Like there's not, that doesn't really happen in that egregious way. And so going to the State of the Union was very um, formal and you have to check your phone. And then, of course, the one little thing I'll say, because it was so funny, I felt so proud to be there. And then, of course, I forgot my phone ticket all the way back at my seat. So when I was, you know, I had to go all the way back and find, they don't take that lightly. They don't take any diversion lightly. So I felt kind of stupid, but I will say lastly that um, because of that, I had to sprint in my high heel shoes all the way to the underground (laughs) thing and the doors opened and um, there was only one other person in the car and it was Cory Booker. And so he was stuck with me for the whole commute, just the two of us. Oh, the my gosh. Back to the Senate building. And I got to sort of tell him all about main risk because he's a criminal justice reform guy. Sure. Sure. And uh, anyway, it was kind of fun. And
0: it was he's great New night. Jersey, right?
1: Yes. Uh, so you got
0: to get, get a gig in New Jersey now out of that.
1: Yeah, well, that's true. And we, <laughs> I would love to do that, especially in Newark. But the needs are different. Where there is profound poverty, where there's such an uphill battle out of you know, just that poverty cyclone. Um, I would love to be instrumental in that in some way because that, to me, generational poverty just is. Um, especially like in places like Newark, where there is no no hope. There's no way out. The, right. You really are stuck there. And so I'd right. love to help in with that concept as we address these issues statewide. Or, you know, United States wide.
0: So before we we wrap up. Margot, is there a message for our audience in terms of ways they could either help you or replicate what you're doing somewhere else or give to the United Recovery Fund, or what's what's a message you would love to give our listeners?
1: Thank you, Bill, for the opportunity. Um, if people are interested in what we're doing, um, by all means, they're welcome to contact me directly, which is just as easy as looking up Mainworks and my phone number is there and I, I um, welcome correspondence, first of all. United Recovery Fund is always looking for support, so I appreciate that. We work really intentionally to help people get from stuck to unstuck and hopeful. So that's great. And I I think that if if I could leave with one thing, that is when you're talking about a bipartisan issue of, for example, economic development for all, no one will argue with that. How can we come together on those issues? How can we find intentional ways to unify because our country is too precious, our democracy is too precious uh, for schoolyard <laughs> antics. And I yep. feel that we are the responsible um, adults in the room who, who yeah. value optimism and value human development. And without our intentional work, we can't let this become hijacked by either extreme. That's right. not practical and that's no way forward. And I am really grateful for what you do, Bill. Thank you so much. And I'm honored to to chat with you. Thanks.
0: Well well, thank you. You are you are can do optimism personified. You're the perfect person to have on this show. And hearing you talk, I I could see Senator Walsh, Governor Walsh. Let's N- go.
1: No way. No way. But thank you. Thank you. God, what a what a um what a compliment. But I feel like if we all do that on our own turf, that we are the change. We have yep. to be. And there's um, you know, if, if and what Senator King does every month, he brings four senators together to his house for barbecue. And two are Republicans and two are Democrats. And he doesn't doesn't care what their posture is. He pulls everybody together because it's hard to hate up close. And to me, if the more you can meet people and learn about their lives, um, that's what we're here for. Really what else matters. So
0: it's a great message. Margo, thank you so much for your time. I know you're really busy. I appreciate you spending this time with us. Thank you,
1: Bill. Thank you so much.
0: Take care. I agree with Margot that democracy is precious and that we should all keep working with hopeful optimism to be sure we do everything we can to maintain it. And she and I also share the belief that business can be a powerful source for good in our society. And I hope you've been inspired to learn about the incredible impact that she and her colleagues have made through their innovative and purpose-driven company. I hope you enjoyed and were inspired by this blue sky conversation and to be sure you don't miss more of this uplifting content you might want to subscribe to this podcast and follow the optimism institute on social media and please let us know how you think we're doing and feel free to send along any show ideas you might have we'd love to hear from you until next time i'm the founder of the optimism institute and host of blue sky bill burke and i thank you for listening